0: For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Now on our third week of this really uh, interesting book of 2 Corinthians. And we spent quite a bit of time setting this up because context is so important uh, for understanding and rooting out the author's intent when why he was writing this book and what it meant. And so we've talked a lot about the unique circumstances of 2 Corinthians in which Paul has sitting down to write. Uh, he's had a, a difficult time. He's got a stressed relationship with the church in Corinth. There's sort of famously uh, this loosely moral culture where uh, a church, a true believing church has uh, arisen because Paul has been sent by God to, start to establish the teachings of Jesus Christ there. But these people are coming from this really sort of uh, wild background, and their church is having problems that a church full of people from wild backgrounds would tend to have. And so he's trying to speak the truth in love and help them to grow and advance in their understanding of God's ways, uh, while at the same time, um, not shying away from, from hard confrontation with them. And it's created a painful rift between Paul and these people. And uh, they received his first letter and they started raising all these accusations against them. They were like, who is Paul? He's not even one of the 12. And, you know, he's not even eloquent like this guy, Apollos, who really comes in and he sounds nice and he speaks well. You know, Peter, Peter was one of the 12 and uh, Jesus said he was the rock on which he was going to build his church. Who is Paul? And so Paul's like, well, I'm the guy that God sent to start the church in your city. And I love you, and I have truth for you. And the love and the truth need to go together. We cannot have love without truth, and we cannot have truth without love. It's both. And he's trying to get them to understand that. And so this is very much in the context. 2 Corinthians was written very shortly after 1 Corinthians, and it's a continuing Discussion with them about these issues. And we see it real clearly in our passage this morning. We jump to 2 Corinthians 2. We read 4 through 10. And it seems like we are. We're jumping into the middle of a conversation and it's a little bit confusing, right? He says, for out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have, especially for you. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, so that, what, that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him, for to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. But to the one who you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. So you're reading along, and you're just like, what? That doesn't make a lot of sense. It's like we're coming in on the middle of a conversation. There's a context here that isn't from 2 Corinthians. You can read 2 Corinthians right from the beginning through this, and you can still be like, I don't know what he's talking about. What is this punishment that's been afflicted by the majority? What is this incidence he has written to them about? All these things reflect back to 1 Corinthians. An event that he talks about in First Corinthians, and it's it's clear something difficult. There's something painful, and that uh, they've been talking about. That's in his, involving his relationship, and something very specific in the church in Corinth. It's some kind of punishment. He says that was inflicted by the majority. That just sounds scary. You know, what is he talking about? And if we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter five, we find that Paul actually devoted an entire chapter. Of 1 Corinthians to a very specific instance of immorality that was happening in the church in Corinth. And now in 2 Corinthians, he's referencing that here. So we gotta go back and we gotta pick up what's going on in 1 Cor 5 in order to fully understand what's happening in 2 Cor 2. So let's go to 1 Cor 5, verse 1. It says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you. An immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. That someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned. Instead, so that one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Okay, so now we begin to see, one, how deep the depravity in, in Corinth is. But two, how difficult this relationship is. Paul is reaming them about an issue, he says, look, there is an immorality happening in your church that doesn't even happen in the most immoral places on the earth. You know, there are a lot of pagan religions where uh, temple prostitutes are considered worship, right? And even they don't do stuff like rejoice when someone sleeps with their father's wife. And you see that and you're like, Wow, You know, I mean, that even even by today's standards, we have a pretty loose moral uh, society. And we're not told, is this his stepmom? Is this his biological mother? Either way, adultery with your mom is not good. There's just no, there's just no that being okay anywhere. And that's Paul's point. He's like, look at yourselves. Look at what's happening among you. And you're not appalled by this. That's a problem that you're like, okay, this is fine. There's an arrogance to you where you're like, you know, oh, look at how free we are. And look, oh, look at how, you know, non-judgmental we are. And Paul's like, no. And he says, you should kick this person out of the church. And now all of a sudden we have this, we have this problem, right? Okay, we're the family of God. We're to be known by our love. That all people are loved. All people are the children of God. And that the community of God is supposed to be that beacon of light, of that, that proof of his love and his incredible forgiveness. And even when we look at something as gross as what was happening on in Corinth, is kicking someone out, is rejecting someone, Is that good? Yes, what's happening there is bad and it's gross. Okay? No one's going to argue that. It's real bad that the people in Corinth aren't more bothered by it. That's bad too. But what about unconditional love? Isn't there a better way than societal, social rejection of a person who clearly has issues... Is that the most, is that love? Putting them out of the church, how is that going to help them if they no longer have access to the community of God? If they no longer have access to the teaching of God? Isn't this a little bit like shooting your wounded? You take somebody who's really hurting, who's obviously got issues, they're sleeping with their father's wife, and you say, uh, You're out, and you cannot be a part of our community any longer. That's sort of just taking a wounded person and and, and and kicking them and saying, you cannot travel with us on this journey anymore. And is that what God is like? And is that what God wants us to do? It really is an engaging question as we understand what this discussion, bridging from 1 Corinthians 5 to 2 Corinthians 2, what they're talking about. It gets harder. 1 Cor 5, right? He says, In verse 3, for I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this, as though I were present. Paul's writing to them, and he's saying, look, you need to judge this guy. You need to to kick him out of the church. I, for one, have already judged him. And if you know anything about the Bible, the, the teachings of, oh, I don't know, Paul, right? It says things like this. It's wrong to judge. Romans 2.1, written by Paul. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. How could Paul write, do not judge because then you are guilty of the same thing on the one hand. And then on the other hand, write, I call on you to judge this person because I have already judged them. That's like one of those many biblical contradictions I'm always hearing about on the History Channel, right? (laughs) We have to break this down. We have to understand. We have to, you know, context is so important. The larger picture, and I hope what we'll see as we work through this together this morning is that there is a completely uh, consistent, loving, and right way that Paul is arguing for here And at its root, at the heart of what we're talking about is, are we an authentic community of God, or are we posers? Are we fakers? That's the question. And so we need to get to the heart of this. We've all heard of things like, you know, people being kicked out of the church, and you know, we have stories, you know, where does this come from? Where does this idea of kicking someone out of the church, where does it come from? And a lot of us think, well, it's got this thing, it's called excommunication, Right? Then we know like Martin Luther was excommunicated by the Pope, right? And we have this, uh, even though many of us are not from a Catholic background, we sort of have this imagery around this idea where it's like, uh, if the church renders this kind of judgment on you, the word excommunication actually specifically means taken out of communion, right? And from a Catholic standpoint, if you're taken out of communion, what it means is that you can no longer receive the sacraments, and what that often means, it depends a little bit on who you talk to in the Catholic church and what the priest says and what the, the history is. But it basically usually means if you can't take the sacraments, then the church is condemning you to hell. Is that what we're talking about? We're we saying this guy is so gross they should kick him out of the church and, and, and there'll be no way for him to be saved. No. No, 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 no. There was nothing in there said about hell, communion, And the whole issue of the sacraments would be a whole other teaching. But we know that the Bible says that we are saved by faith through God's grace, through Jesus Christ's death on the cross, that there are no works that we can do to earn God's salvation. And so that whole imagery of excommunication and by disciplining someone in this way, we are somehow uh, removing them from God's love. No people have the power to do that. And God himself says, nothing can separate you from my love. Neither heights, nor depths, nor principalities, nor any created thing. That God's love for us is unshakable. So we're not talking about excommunication. The heart of this, the root of this, comes from the teachings of Jesus Christ. We go, Paul's not making this up. He knows about Jesus' teaching. And we go back to Matthew 18, 15 through 17, and we read that Jesus taught this. He says, if your brother sins, meaning your fellow believer, go and show him his fault in private. Talk about these things. Show him where he's wrong. If he listens, you have won your brother. That's the way community is supposed to work. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So you've got a serious problem in a fellow Christian's life. You go and you say, dude, you've got this thing going on. It's really bad for you. You know, we agree that the Bible says that this is wrong. And they're like, hey, who are you to judge me? I'm going to do what I want. And you're like, no, that's not God's way. You say you want to live God's way. And they're like, get out of my face. And you're like, all right, well, I'm going to come back with you know, two more of our friends, and we're going to sit you down, and we're going to say, dude, this cannot stand. This has to change. And we're going to go through, and we're going to find all the facts of the situation. We're not going to jump you know, and make assumptions. We want to understand what you are doing according to what God has said. And we are going to plead with you to change. If he refuses to listen even then— Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. So you go and with two or more and you still can't get them to agree that things need to change. Then you go to the church. And that setting in the ancient world in this context wasn't like, you know, we would bring someone, drag someone up here and be like, hey, everybody, here's this sinner and we got to have a talk, right? This would be much more uh, appropriate like in a home Bible study setting. And, you know, that's who we are. We see ourselves as this is a collection of different home Bible studies here. And so that would be a thing where people really know each other, not that you would bring a stranger in front of strangers and, and get into these kinds of issues in someone's life. And he says, and if that doesn't work even then, then treat them as you would a tax collector. Now, that's just simply saying in the Jewish context in which Jesus is teaching, refuse to associate with them. Do not eat meals with this person. Do not socialize with this person. Do not offer this person comfort because they have a problem and we're trying to convince them that they need to change. That's the idea behind this. So we see the Bible does have a place for this, for this kind of discipline, this kind of movement towards somebody in this extreme way. And there's a very specific way to go about it. Go to your brother, get him to see the error of his ways. If that doesn't work, bring some friends along and try to talk them into understanding what the problem here is and agree that things need to change. If that doesn't work, make an issue out of it of the community and say, look, we cannot sit back and let this go unchallenged. You have a problem and we love you. And if that doesn't work, then it might come to a point where the community needs to say to this person, you need to leave the church. We can't socialize with you until you agree with God on this point. That's what's happening in 1 Corinthians 5. And that's what he's referencing in our passage, 2 Corinthians 2. Then we get this from 1 Cor 5. He's just said this statement about, I've already judged this guy. And he says, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And, you know, if you're unfamiliar with biblical nomenclature, with the way that he talks about these kinds of things, I mean, this can draw forward images like this. Like, we're delivering him over to Satan. There's some kind of medieval horned being that's going to destroy his flesh. And you're like, the Bible's so gross and silly and wrong, right? But that's not at all the imagery that he's calling forth. These kinds of images wouldn't be drawn until 1,000 years after he wrote this. What Paul is is saying is, turning someone over to Satan is, the Bible says that Satan is the ruler of this world. That you are putting them outside of the church, which means you're going to refuse to shelter them from the realities of this world, the cold realities of the world of men. And let them see the contrast between living in a community where we forgive one another, where we love one another, where we support one another, and let them do it on their own so that their pride will be broken and they will realize that they need to change. That's what he means when he says that. It's giving them motivation and reason to see that things need to be different. And I understand a lot of people are like, this still sounds really harsh. But even the world system has developed a category for this. We call it an intervention, right? Right? Well, that idea of an intervention comes from Jesus. It comes from the passages that we're talking about right here. And yes, it's only for the most extreme cases, and it's only if it's in the person's best interest, but we can agree that there is such a thing as tough love, as a need to come to someone and say, look, this thing that you are doing, it is destroying your family, it's destroying your life, it's destroying your relationship with God, and we will not stand idly by and watch you destroy your life. We love you too much, to let your alcoholism destroy you and get you killed or someone else killed. We love you too much to watch you waste the incredible gifts that God has given you and waste your potential by burning out on drugs, by being a thief, a swindler, by by preying on the innocent, or by taking advantage of people sexually. That is not God's way. And we have a category as a real community to come together and say, we're all sinners, but we, we will not pretend like this isn't happening. And we will not enable such destructive behavior in your life. But then that leads us back to the question, but what about this whole thing about isn't it judgmental? What about, how are we to, you know, come to a conclusion that this is so bad that we might need to, to intervene in this way, and then, you know, what about judging? And fortunately, Paul explains that quite well in 1 Corinthians 5 in the context of this situation with this guy. After he says, I've, I've already judged this guy, and so should you, we should put him out into the world for the destruction of his flesh. Then he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with the idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. This is a very important caveat of this entire situation. He says, when I said to you, don't associate with this immoral person, I meant this immoral brother in Christ. I did not mean all the immoral people of the world because then you would have no point in being here. We don't judge non-Christians this way because they don't know and they don't know the word and they don't agree with the word. And so we don't cast them out of our midst. Jesus said, I'm a doctor and I came to heal the sick. If I'm not right in the middle of the swindlers and the idolaters and the coveters, then why am I here? And so this isn't something we use to cleanse the church of the unfaithful. It's something entirely different. He says, but actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. This is an in-house issue for believers. No non-believer should ever be disciplined in this way. That's pretty interesting. Interesting. This is for us who believe in the truth of the Bible. And we have uh, an ongoing sense of communal morality that comes from Scripture. It's because we have a moral consensus that we have the freedom to feel okay and right and good about speaking the truth in love. Right? You go out into the world and you go outside of the church and the most arrogant, terrible, horrible thing that you can do is tell someone else that they are wrong. That means you don't love them. right? And it's because in the world outside of biblical community, no one can agree on what right and wrong are. And who are you to impose your morals on me? And who am I to impose my morals on you? And so yes, we have societal laws in order to keep some semblance of structure. But we can't go and say this thing that you're doing is wrong. If it's legal, who are we to say that? But when we as a family, as the people of God, come together and say we believe that there is an all-powerful creator God of the universe, We, we believe that we are all sinners, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We believe that God has shown us what truth is, what right is, and what goodness is. He's revealed his character through the scriptures and he came in the person of jesus christ to die for our sins so that we could be forgiven we can agree and we can look at each other's lives and we can say there are moral standards that come from god not me imposing my opinions on you but us looking together as we walk with god and saying there are areas where we fall short And they're very objective areas where we can say that God's word says we shouldn't be this way. And so we can go to each other with those things and say this thing, this destructive thing that's happening in your life is against the word of God. And if they're a believer, they would say, yes, I see that that's true. And you say, are you willing to work on changing, right? The question is not, are you gonna ever do that again, right? Because we know better than that and God knows better than that. We can't make pledges like that. But will you agree that this is wrong and let us help you set your course on a different path? And if the answer is yes, then you have won your brother. But if the answer is no, you know, this alcohol thing, I need it. I can't be social without it. Uh, I, you know, I, 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 you know, I don't have a problem. It's just a six pack, you know, twice a day. That's where we can come in and say, dude, that's not the case. That's not God's way. And we're not going to sit back and let you destroy yourself and be a part of you destroying yourself. We, as, a, as believers, agree in God's moral wisdom. And when our sin is pointed out, we have to get to the point where we can agree, I'm a sinner and things need to change. So how does this work? How can it be redemptive within a community? If we're going to dare to follow the Bible's wisdom on something like this as a church and as a community, how can it be redemptive? And that's where 2 Corinthians 2, 6 through 8 comes in. Because what's happened is is they've done what he instructed them to do. It was very painful. It was very hard. And now he's giving them the other piece. Sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. As gross as this sin was, and it's clear, like, they haven't broken off all ties with this guy because they're still in communication with him. But what they've done is they've said, you can't come to fellowship with us. You can't come to my house for dinner. You can't experience the comfort of the body of Christ until you agree that this thing going on in your life needs to change. And he's come to the point where he has agreed. And Paul says, welcome him with open arms. Reaffirm your love and do not leave him dangling out there in the cold. Fully embrace him back into the community as a beloved brother. And so in this case, it was very redemptive. Obviously, they had gone to him with one person and he had refused to change his ways. They'd gone to him with two or more. They'd gone to him with the church and said, look, this thing that you're doing is not right. It cannot stand. And he was like, I would rather be out in the world than be with you people. And he did that and he realized what a mistake that was and he came back and he's saying, I, as much as I said to you, Condemn this person, judge this person, put them out. I am now saying to you, welcome them back with open arms. It shows that we have a category for both truth and love. Consider the alternative. The alternative is, is that we claim to be about truth and love. We claim to be about community. We claim to have real relationships with each other where we talk about real things and we struggle with real things and we share real things. And somewhere in this room is a family with a deep, dark secret. Dad's an alcoholic and he's functional, but he beats mom and the kids are scared. And they, the idea that they would be in our midst, that could be happening right here. And it probably is. And that we wouldn't know about it is terrifying. But what would be even more terrifying would be if we did know about it and we felt like it wasn't our place to do anything about it. That will not stand. That is not love. That is not the church. That is not what we're here to do. We are not here to turn a blind eye to evil. At the same time, we are not here to condemn people with problems. We're here to help them, as God's ambassadors called to that work. And so, we proceed carefully in prayer, according to the word of God, with love. Loving people too much to enable their self-destruction. And being willing to take hard risks, The other redemptive piece of being willing as a community to take this kind of stand is we demonstrate to ourselves that we are sincere in the truth, that we are not playing here at church, that we want real community, and we want to really help people, and we really want to see lives changed. God's church is not a social club. You're going to be real unhappy coming here thinking, you know, this is just a fun thing to do on Sunday morning, you know. It's going to be real sad for you if you come here with that mentality and then we come along and say, let's get involved in the community. Let's, let's connect and let's, let's help change people's lives. And you're like, oh, I just have an hour on Sunday morning. We did it when I was growing up and I just, I like the feel. You got a nice little scene out there. I like to come and, and stare at that for an hour. That's not who we are. That's not where we are. We're not a place to network, right? To, uh, to you know, uh, start connecting and, and, and get a better job. We're not a place to sell your Tupperware, your berries, your aroma fragrances. I know your knives are indestructible and they can cut right through a can. That's not who we are. That's not who we want to be, Right? the church is God's place to manifest his truth. It's the place where the love of God and the truth of God together are on display for the world to see. And that is an incredible gift, an incredible blessing to be a part of something like that. And it's an incredible responsibility. We are obligated to meaningfully move toward one another with our stuff and to be real with one another. He finishes this chapter with this. He says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to the one, an aroma from death to death to the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many peddling the word of God. But as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. And that's such an interesting picture that he brings this whole issue right on the heels of this issue of this, this discipline that happened in this church. He says, your, your church, our church, is going to have a scent." People are going to walk in the door, and they're going to smell something, right? What are they going to smell when they come to Zenos Christian Fellowship? What's it to, what does it smell like here? Does it smell like, you know, a stuffy, you know, dead place? Does it smell like life? And he says, it's interesting, you know, you, if you have the aroma of Christ, he says, uh, that can mean a lot of different things. But if you're going to be an authentic community, it means real relationships. It means real confrontation. It means that we resolve our differences, that we speak, we forgive, and we challenge. It means that there are real consequences to our actions that we don't just back off and say, oh, well, you know, we don't want to push it too far you know, because um, you know, we don't want to make things too uncomfortable here. It means real love Real truth. And no, we don't do this perfectly. Let me be 100% clear with you. Xenos is a flawed organization. From the top down, we got problems. Because it's filled with people. But let's strive together to be authentic and to be real and to be biblical. And to share the benefits of that with those who don't know Jesus Christ. If we are real, he says, and we are authentic, we will still smell like death to some people. Because there are people who are so angry, who are so hostile, who are so prideful, who are so hell-bent on being their own gods, when they see the glory of the incorruptible God of the universe, they are angry. Because they want to be God. And we, if we are real and true, will smell like death to them. They will come in here and they will be like, oh my God, those people think that they're so great and that they're, you know, so high and mighty and that they are the ones that have all the answers and I just can't believe that anybody would be so archaic in their thinking. But we can be authentic and we can be real and we can have that same aroma and to others it will smell like life. Where they will come in and they will look around the room and they will say, I've never seen anything like this. These people talk about real things. They share their lives. They have community. They talk about parenting and, 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 and their neighbors and their marriages and they support one another. And no, they're not perfect, but they're striving for something that's beautiful and that I wish I had in my life. I wish I had found this sooner. How could I, how could I be a part of that? The same smell of death Can smell like life to someone who's being drawn in and invited by God to see the realities of how it is that we are supposed to live. And our, your, and my, our community here across the city, all of that is dependent. The the aroma that we share is dependent on our willingness to be authentic, to be biblical and be real with one another. What we're talking about here is there's no need to walk around on eggshells, right? I mean, it would absolutely be horrific if any of you walked out of here thinking like, is someone trying, is, are they planning on dis, disciplining me, right? Someone talks to you, one person comes to you, and they're like, hey, you got an issue in your life, and you're like, oh my God, it's happening to me, right? We're gonna have a weekly like, you know, tribunal, and I'll get like a wig, you know? That will never happen. That has never happened. You will don't get blindsided by this. Why? Because of the way that it's structured. Someone comes to you, right? Now, if somebody comes to you and it's like, uh, your problem here is real serious and you, know, you need to change. And you're like, no. And then they show up with two or more and they're like, look, if you don't listen to us, we're going to have to bring this in front of the church. Now you've got a risk. But it's, it's, it's obvious Right? You're not going to walk in, be invited, like, hey, come to my house and hang out, and then we'll be there, like, rah, we'll get you. (laughs) And the way to avoid it, as a believer, is to agree with the word of God. The instant that you say, I agree with God, and I agree that this issue needs to change. Not a pledge, I will never do that again. I will never have another drink. I will never, you know, pop another pill. No, no, no. We don't even want you to make that pledge. We just want you to agree that God's ways are best and that we're going to strive together for victory. And once that happens in sincerity, there is no discipline. There's only the support of the community of God getting behind you and trying to help you do that. All of us continue to sin, and we all have problems, and we're not running around, you know, uh, oh, you know, I see that... uh, you're driving over the speed limit. This is your first warning, and we'll be back with the other brothers tomorrow, <laughs> right? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about destructive patterns that are going to destroy your family and your life. That's what we're talking about. And no one can be put out of the church for life. Impermissible. It is only done in cases where it is the most extreme thing. Everything else has been tried and it is over the instant someone says, okay, I want to change. Can I come back? Yes. The answer is yes. And let's figure out how to do that together. Let's close with this. I think this verse really points to the authenticity that this issue encapsulates. 1 John 3, 16 and 19 says, we know love by this, that he who laid his life Down for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for our brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know that by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. Let's love real love and let's live real truth and let's do it together and let's invite everyone to be a part of it and let's work through our issues together I'm off next week I'm going to pray for me I'm going to go teach epic uh, on Wednesday uh, 750 high school students at camp uh, please pray for that uh, it's amazing. It's also an awesome time. But uh, So I'll be off of that next week. But I'll be back in two weeks, and we'll continue Second Corinthians. We'll be in chapter 3. Uh, your scripture type or verse uh, for that one. So you have two weeks to memorize this verse. Second Corinthians 3, 4 through 6. Uh, it's, an, it's a really good one. I've really enjoyed uh, so many people. We've got like over 100 people that have joined that group, uh, and we're just memorizing passages together. Yeah, Lord, we uh, are only willing to even consider uh, such drastic measures in the light of the fact that we acknowledge that we ourselves are sinful people and that um, none of us are perfect and that we're here by definition as Christians to admit that we need a Savior, that we deserve judgment and um, that we embrace the great gift that you have given us through Jesus' death on the cross because uh, we need forgiveness. And we pray that that grace, that truth, will inform and and be the the driving force and the authenticity that we strive to see accomplished as a community, that it would be a community of authentic love and authentic truth, and that you would guard that and protect that in Jesus' name.